In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, one God, Amen. God willing, tonight we will actually continue our Bible study from Psalm 24. Psalm 24. Each psalm has a title. And a title, the title of this psalm, a psalm of David, which means the author is David the prophet. But according to the Septuagint version, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, uh, the title, a psalm of David himself on the first day of the week, which means this psalm to be sung on the first day after the Sabbath, which is Sunday, because Sabbath is considered the seventh day, so the first day will be Sunday. Although it is clear from the title that the author is David the prophet, but unfortunately some scholars say David is not the author. So if you read any commentary in which they say David is not the author, then don't trust this commentary that much because it's clear from the title in the Hebrew version and in the Septuagint version that the author is David the prophet. But most of the scholars believe that this, this psalm was sung of the triumph. Most of the scholars believe that this psalm was a song of triumph, victory, sung by those returning victorious from a battle. So when they return from a battle winning, they chant this psalm. Uh, and when they return from the battle, they usually go to the temple to thank God. So while they were ascending to the temple, they were chanting this psalm to glorify God and to glorify uh, the, uh, where God appears on the cover of the Ark of Covenant. That's where God usually appeared. According to St. Augustine, he said, a psalm of David himself, touching the glorifying and resurrection of the Lord, which took place early in the morning on the first day of the week, which is now called the Lord's Day. So St. Augustine, this, this psalm is about the resurrection of the Lord, because it says it chanted on the first day of the week. And Sunday is the day of resurrection, the day of the Lord. And actually, this psalm has the enactment of the resurrection. If you remember the enactment of resurrection, it's in Psalm 24. Lift up your heads, O your gates, and be lifted up your everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Who is the King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle, etc. We will come to it when we actually speak about the psalm. So St. Augustine actually said, this psalm is the psalm of resurrection. Because as a title, it says, on, sung on the first day of the week, and the first day is the day of resurrection uh, Sunday. And that's why the church used it in the enactment of resurrection. This psalm is composed on occasion of bringing the ark from the house of Obed-Edom. You can read this story. The ark actually 
when was at the Philistines and it caused them Ill- illness and diseases there. So they decided to return it back to Israel. But David was scared because the Ark of Covenant caused them illnesses and diseases. So he was scared to get the Ark to uh, Zion. So he left it at the house of Obed-Adam. And God blessed the house of Obed-Adam with so many blessings. So David started to think, now should I should bring this uh, uh, ark to the city of Zion. And actually, it was a big celebration in bringing the ark to the city of, of Zion. That's why they say this psalm was composed by David on that occasion, when they bringing the ark from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David or to Jerusalem. Other think that David wrote it to be sung on the occasion of the dedication of the temple. So David did not build the temple, his son, but in a spirit of prophecy, he wrote it. So Solomon, when he built the temple and on the day of his dedication of the temple, they will chant this song. But this song actually, this song can be chanted on the day they brought the ark to Jerusalem, and also it was chanted again on the day of the dedication of the temple. Um, so the eye of David looked beyond the normal event of bringing the ark to Jerusalem to also the glorious ascension of the king of glory. This psalm, until now, we read it in the gospel, before the gospel of the Feast of Ascension. So this psalm can be a psalm of resurrection and also can be the psalm of ascension. So David, in a prophetic way, actually looked beyond the, uh, bringing the ark to Jerusalem, but he saw in a prophetic way the Lord Jesus Christ ascending to heaven and composed this psalm. And if you remember, on the day, on the Feast of Ascension, the psalm that we read it before uh, the Gospel of Ascension is this psalm. The three Psalms 22, 23, 24, there is connection between them. Psalm 22 is speaking about the suffering Savior. Actually, Psalm 22, from its beginning to its end, is about the crucifixion of our Lord Jesus Christ. In detail, as if David was sitting at the cross and writing this psalm. Psalm 23, Jesus, our good shepherd, the Lord is my shepherd. So, how's the connection here? Before we were in the kingdom of Satan, but after the Lord Jesus Christ was crucified and established his kingdom, he transferred us from kingdom of darkness to his own kingdom to be our good shepherd. So Psalm 22 speaks about Jesus who suffered on the cross. Then he became our good shepherd, Psalm 23. Then he is a glorified king. He ascended to heaven and in him all of us will ascend to heaven and be with him in heaven uh, in eternity. And according to the tradition of our church, uh, this song is sung in the Feast of Resurrection and Ascension, as explained. 
Also, we prayed in the third hour of the Agbiyah. Third hour of the Agbiyah. That is the third psalm in the third hour of the Agbiyah. And because it prophesies about the ascension, we call it the Song of Ascension. It is a short psalm, uh, 10 verses. We can actually divide it into three parts. First part, the Lord is the creator, sovereign ruler, from verse 1 and 2. Then, the conditions of entering his sanctuary, from 3 to 6. Then, from 7 to 10, the glorious and conquering king. The glorious and conquering king. So, let's start from verse 1 and 2. The earth is the Lord's and all its fullness, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded upon the seas and established it upon the waters. So the psalmist begins with a representation of God's dominion over this world in general and his providential presence in every part of it. So he's saying the earth and its fullness belong to the Lord. His sovereignty is not limited to a single nation or a single country, but the whole earth, the whole universe. St. Jerome says, a believer is not judged according to his place of residence, whether here or there, but according to the worthiness of his faith. Why he is saying this? In the Old Testament, you have to be an Israelite to be among the people of God. So they limited the people of God to Israel. But in the New Covenant, actually anyone, any place in the whole world, regardless of his race, his color, actually can believe in God and can have the inheritance of the kingdom of heaven. He is the Lord of the whole world. Why? Because he is the creator of the whole world. That's why the earth and all its fullness is his, because he is the creator. Men may claim district and kingdom as their property. I am the king of this country. But as for God, he is the Lord of the whole earth. But the earth here also is a symbol of the church, where God dwells in the midst of his people. We say in our hymns, Emmanuel, our God, is now in our midst with the glory of his Father and the Holy Spirit. Also, the earth can be symbol of our body. You are the temple of God and the Holy Spirit abides in you. So, it is the position of God who sanctify our earth, means our body, with all its senses, emotions, powers, desires, as good things given by him. St. Clement of Alexandria says, the holy book says, the earth is the Lord's and all its fullness. By this it teaches us that all good things are from God. 
presented to mankind by his divine power and might and distributed by him to support men. So every good thing comes from God and God give us these gifts to support us. Uh, the earth and all its fullness, which means all which it contains, everything which goes to fill up the world, animal, mineral, vegetables, people, everything belongs to God. Everything belongs to God. All belong to Him. He has right to claim them for His service. And we know that even the waves obeyed Jesus' voice. The storm, the Lord said, come, so obeyed the, the voice of the Lord. And he spoke to the waves and said, peace, be still. So the water, the, who has authority over nature except God? And why has authority over nature? Because the earth and all its fullness belongs to the Lord. So the water, the land, the sky, everything, the whole universe, subject to God. God established the earth above the seas, as we read in verse 2, for he has found it upon the seas and established it upon the waters. So God established the earth above the seas and waters and causing it to appear, thus making it a fitting habitation for man. If you read in Genesis chapter 1, it was water, and then God said, let land appear, so the land appeared. And now it became habitation for us. So David looked back to the creation account in Genesis chapter 1, and remember the creation of the land in the midst of the earth waters. And even when you look at uh, any map, you will find its water and pieces of land in the midst of this water. But there is a beautiful meaning, spiritual meaning for this. The foundation of the earth is the water. And water, actually, you cannot build a house over the water. It's slippery, uncertain. So it tells us that the earth and the love of the world is like you are building your house on a water, slippery and uncertain. You remember at the Sermon on the Mountain, the Lord compared between a wise man who builds his house on the rock and a foolish man builds his house on the sand. But there is a more foolish person who builds his house on water. If you, I built my house on the love of the world and the pleasures of the world. That's why he said, the earth is established upon the water. Their foundation is not sand, but water. That's for it is foolishness to build upon them. Uh, some may think that the world belongs to Satan, because Satan is the ruler of this world, as the Bible says. But this is not true. Yes, Satan is called the God of this age. But when he tempted the Lord Jesus Christ and he promised the Lord to give him the kingdom of the world, actually the Lord did not question the ability of Satan 
to give him the kingdom of the world. Because the truth is, Satan can only do what God allows him to do. Satan is under the authority of God. So if God did not allow him to do anything, he cannot do it. So, uh, verse 1 and 2 actually spoke about the Lord is the creator and sovereign ruler of all. Then from verse 3, he speak about who actually is worthy, or let me paraphrase it. What are the requirements to be able to enter the house of the Lord? So he start by question, verse 3. Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord? Or who may stand in his holy place? So after David in verse 1 and 2 reflected on the sovereign ownership of the Lord of the earth and all who live upon it, then David started to wonder who had the right to stand before God, before this mighty God, before this sovereign ruler of the earth. Yes, many of us, we can say, let us go to the church, let us go to the house of the Lord. But David is asking, who of all that number, who will actually go to the house of the Lord, is worthy to stand in, in the front of the Lord. Yes, as the Bible says, many are called, but few chosen. Though the Lord has a claim in general to the whole world, but actually God separated a certain part from the whole world to be in particular His. It's called the church. And church, ecclesia, means called out. And when we say consecrate or holy, holy means to separate. So this part, the church, is separate from the whole earth to reflect heaven. So it's icon of heaven. So although God actually is the Lord of the whole world and all its fullness, but yet, there is a particular part of it which is his special property and that is his church and his people. Like an owner who owner many, many, many real estates, but there is a particular house called his house where he lives. Uh, so, Many people ask it, what is the hill of the Lord or the mountain of the Lord? So they said it's mountain Moriah or the hill of Zion on which the temple was built during Solomon. So it's called the hill of the Lord where he desired to dwell as we read in Psalm 68 verse 15. But in a prophetic way, in the new covenant, the hill of the Lord is the church. So that is the house of God. That is the house of God. And uh, he said, who may ascend? Then after he said, who may ascend, the first part, he said, who may stand? 
So ascending means going, standing, entering, and staying. So after he asked who, who may ascend, then he start to ask, you know, who may uh, stand. The importance of this question is, who is a proper person to be an inhabitant of Zion or a member in the Church of Christ? God's supreme sovereignty requires a befitting holiness of life and uh, an, an heart in his worshippers. As we say, holiness becomes your house, O Lord. So when we approach and when we come to this place, it's different than any other place. It's the house of God. So there are certain requirements. God is demanding certain requirements from us when to enter his house. Because holiness uh, becomes your house, O Lord. You know, we say the struggling church is here on earth. Sometimes we call it the militant church. And the victorious church, those who departed and in the paradise. So some say the hell of the Lord refers to church militant. Uh, and some say it is the church victorious or triumphant. And some say the hell of the Lord is Christ himself. According to the prophecy in Daniel, he saw a stone was cut. And then this stone actually became actually a great mountain filled with the whole, uh, filled the whole earth. You can read this in Daniel chapter 2, verse 35. So the name of the Lord can refer to Christ, can refer to the victorious church or the struggling church. Then in verse 4, start to answer the question. He said, he who has clean hands and a pure heart, he who has not lifted up his soul to an idol, nor is sworn deceitfully. Clean hand, is the external manifestation. But clean hand without good, clean hand means good works. Without pure heart, we call it what? Hypocrisy. That's why he said clean hand and pure heart. So there is integrity here. And then he said, he has not lifted up his soul to an idol, nor is sworn deceitfully. So, he who has clean hands mean whose actions, hands and conversation are holy, righteous and blameless. Hands lifted up in prayer must be pure hands. If I'm going to come to the church, in church what I'm going to do, I'm going to pray. So when I lift my hands up in prayer, I should lift pure hands before God. And not only clean hands, but he has also to have a pure heart good intentions, then the heart, as we read in, in Matthew chapter 15, is the source of all evil. If uh, God did not uh, create in me a clean heart. Sinful words, wicked acts, are the natural results of impure heart. Out of the abundance of heart speaks the mouth, as the Lord said. Although he mentioned clean hands before pure heart. Why? Because the works are more obvious to see and others can observe them. 
Yet the pure heart actually is internal. People cannot see my heart. But in reality, the pure heart actually comes first before the clean hand. Because when I have a pure heart, my hands will be clean. My works will be clean. Because without pure heart, there is no clean hands. However, no man has a pure heart naturally and of himself. The heart is desperately wicked because we are born with corrupted nature. And as we read in, in Genesis, the imagination of thoughts of the heart is evil continued. The mind and the conscience are defiled with sin. That's why in baptism we get a new nature. And no one can make his heart clean or can say, I am pure from sin. The only one who can actually cleanse my heart is God. It is God who creates a clean heart. And even David did not say, uh, purify my heart. He said, create in me a clean heart, as if asking for heart transplant. Remove this heart, the wicked heart. The heart is full of corruption and create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew your Holy Spirit within me. So it's God who creates a clean heart and renew a right spirit within us and purifies our heart by faith. Also, if you choose God to be your Lord, you cannot lift up your soul to an idol. You cannot worship money. You cannot worship your ego. You cannot worship uh, the pleasures of the world. So the one who accepted God and accepted by God reject idolatry in his actions, especially in his soul. And those whose heart are not carried toward the wealth of this world or praise of men, but these are the idols, money, ego, pleasure. They don't lift up their souls unto vanity. And those who do not choose these things, nor reach forth after them, because they believe them to be vanity, uncertain, unsatisfying, those can stand before God. If you don't lift your soul up to love of money, love of pleasure, or love of pride. Also, these people, they don't sworn deceitfully. The word we speak are good indication of the state of our heart because out of the abundance of heart, speak the mouth. So, if I am making deceptive promises, then God has no place in my heart, and also I have no place before God, those who make deceptive promises. So, in the fullest sense, there was but one in whom all these things are fulfilled, Jesus Christ. So, when we put the righteousness of Jesus on us, when we are united with him, then we will be righteous. Which means I cannot enter the church except if I am united with the Lord Jesus Christ. Because the only one who has this requirement 100% fulfilled 
is the Lord Jesus Christ. So, if one to, the answer to this question, whom he ascend into the hill of the Lord, we will find the answer in John chapter 3, verse 13. If we see the hill of the Lord represent heaven of heavens, the Lord said, no one has ascended to heaven, but he who came down from heaven, that is the Son of Man who is in heaven. He is the only one. So, if I want to go to heaven, I have to be in Christ. If I am not in Christ, I will not go to heaven. The only way to go to heaven to be in Christ. Now, what are the fruits of a person who actually is, has a clean heart uh, and clean hands, does not swarm deceitfully, and does not lift up his soul in vanity? Verse 5 answers this question. He, this person, shall receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. So, the fruits of this holy church life, the believers who walk in a holy life shall receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness. It is the righteousness of Christ, not my own righteousness. Righteousness from God of his salvation. God reward those who honor him with their life. When actually I live righteous and holy life, I'm honoring God. And in return, God will honor us. To the person who comes to God with an honest and true heart, God will give additional graces, just as justifications, assurance, perseverance, unwavering hope. So we'll get all these blessings from God. And he will be regarded and treated as righteous. Not his own righteousness, but the righteousness of Christ. Unfortunately, the wicked and the impure cannot hope to obtain these blessings. These blessings are for those who walk in the fear of God. But he who was righteous would be treated according to his real character and would meet with the assurance of divine favor. It is as true now as it was in the days of the psalmist, that it is only the man who is in fact upright and holy can obtain the evidence of divine approval. So as it was in the days of David, those who are godly and holy, they got the approval of the Lord, the same is true today. Then verse 6 starts by saying, this is Jacob, the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face, Selah. This is Jacob. Maybe the psalmist meant this is Israel, the people of God. But why he used Jacob? Because Jacob wrestled with God, and after he wrestled, his name was changed to Israel. So, some of the father explain this is Jacob, refers to the Lord Jesus Christ, under the title of Jacob. Because Jesus, from the offspring of, of Jacob, according to the flesh, so when he said this is Jacob, this requirement is fulfilled in Jacob, fulfilled in Jesus Christ, in his incarnation, 
when he became a man like us and uh, being called like us a man, hum human being like all of us. But other father said it means that we can seek the face of that, that Jacob saw. Uh, you know, in Genesis chapter 32, verse 30, Jacob says, I have seen God face to face and my life is preserved. So if you have this requirement, you will see the same face that Jacob saw and our life will be preserved, exactly as Jacob says. Also, it means that he whom we seek, Jesus whom we seek, is the God of Jacob signifying that we also must struggle and wrestle like Jacob struggled with God if we would reach him, if we would reach him. This is Jacob. It's also a way of identifying God's covenant people. Jacob is Israel, the people of the covenant. But in the New Testament, New Israel are all the Christian. And there is repetition here, repetition. The generation of those who seek him who seek your face. So, seek here was repeated twice. This repetition means there is a lesson for us to learn here. Uh, the generation of those who seek Him, who seek Him. How we seek God? In prayer. That's why there is emphasis here that we need to learn earnestness in prayer. We can also say that the blessed and righteous ones have entered into the covenant of God, like Jacob, like Israel. The blessed and righteous ones do more than enter into the covenant of God. They pursue Him with a continual seeking. That's why he repeated seeking twice. So it's not enough to enter the covenant. All of us, we enter the covenant when, when we were baptized. All of us, we enter this covenant. But it is not enough to enter into the covenant by baptism, but you need to seek the face of Jacob continually in your everyday life. This is the generation of those who seek him. Generation describes the race of those who seek him. It is the character of his true friends, his true children. Children who seek the face of God are the true believers in Christ, the true Christian. And again, seek him, indicate in earnest desire to know him. Sila, what is the word Sila here at the end of verse 6? Sila, this word is only used in the book of Psalms. And we used one uh, twice in the song of Habakkuk. Verse, chapter 3, verses 3, and verse 9 and verse 13. Three times in the song of Habakkuk. Much has been written on this word. And still, its meaning does not appear to be wholly determined. There are some different opinions about this word. For example, some say it is musical note, directing the singer, the one who chant the psalm, either to lift up his voice, or to make a short pause, or to lengthen out the tune. In general, it indicates a pause in the sense, as well as in musical performance, meaning what? A pause to reflect, to meditate. 
So after he said, who can enter the house of the Lord? So there is a pause here to reflect. Does he, whether these requirements apply to me or not, what I'm going to do about it. So another consider the word sila is an affirmation of the truth of anything good or bad, like the word amen or verily or true. So answering to amen in this sense, Ibn Azra, a Jewish scholar, he said sila means like amen. So after David said the requirement of those who enter the house of the Lord, so Selah means Amen. This is true. These are the requirements of those who enter the Lord. Then from verse 7, it speaks about the glorified and conquering king. And as I told you, this part is used in the resurrection and used in the ascension. Let me explain to you the resurrection first the enactment of resurrection. We turn the light off, and then the two deacons outside, two deacons represent the angels. And Abuna stand inside, represent the high priest, or uh, the, the Sharubim, who is guarding the tree of life. Because on the altar, we have the body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. That is the tree of life. So there is a cherubim who is guarding the tree of life. So why we turn the light? Because now people were sitting in darkness and shadow of death. So that is the turning off, uh, off of the light. Then the angels who are ascending with Christ to the paradise of joy. Here we have Christ with all the uh, souls of the believers, Adam and his children, he took them from Hades and he is ascending to the paradise. So the angels are saying Christ is risen. The Sharubim inside is saying uh, truly he is risen. Then the angels says, lift up your heads, all your gates, and be lifted up, you everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Everlasting doors, everlasting. The doors of Hades are not everlasting. So these are the doors of the paradise. So now they are chanting, open your gates so the king of glory may enter with all the souls of the believers. So the angel inside the cherubim, he is saying, who is this king of glory? As I will explain, this question is not a question of ignorance. But he, he wants to proclaim to the whole world who is the King of Glory. So the answer, the Lord is strong and mighty. The Lord mighty in battle, he is the King of Glory. And then we open the curtain, uh, meaning the doors of paradise that were closed after the fall of Adam and Eve, now they are opened. And then uh, the icon of Christ enters with all the deacon representing Christ, enters into the paradise of joy with all the souls of the believers. And we turn the light on, that is resurrection. And we know from the Gospel of St. Matthew that after the resurrection of Christ, many souls of the departed actually rose and appeared to people in Jerusalem. So after we do the procession three times inside the altar, 
we go in the church. Why? This symbolizes the appearance of the souls to the people and the appearance of Christ himself for 40 days to the people in the world. Then the procession ends where it ends in the altar. Because after these souls appear to the people, they died again and rested in the paradise. And also Christ, after appearing for 40 days, he ascended into the heaven. That's why this procession ends inside the altar. That's the meaning of procession. But while I am explaining the rest of the psalm, I will focus on the ascension. I explained the resurrection, now I will focus, because I told you this is a psalm of resurrection and ascension. So verse 7, lift up your heads, O you gates, and be lifted up, you everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. So the first section of the psalm declared the greatness of God, verse 1 and 2. Then from verses 3 to verse 6, it spoke of how man can come into relationship with this great God. Now the third part welcomes God unto his people by opening of the gates. So now we open, the gates are open to welcome God. It seems that David have decided to bring the ark to Jerusalem, to Mount Zion, from Obed-Edom house. And having seen by the eye of prophecy, the Lord who became man ascending into the heaven, into the eternal Zion. And he used military language to welcome the Lord in his victory to the heaven of heavens. And the book of Revelation presents to us in a more than one location a magnificent portrait of the Savior as a conqueror who grants victory to his people. For example, in Revelation chapter 6, verse 2, And I looked, and behold, a white horse, he who sat on it had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he went out conquering and to conquer. So here the image of Christ entering into the heaven of heavens as a conqueror. So here is a representation of triumphant entrance of a king into his royal city and palace, the heaven of heavens, for which the gates used to be wide open. And there are different means which have been attached to this verse. One meaning would apply to Christ's triumphant entry into Jerusalem on, the, on Palm Sunday or Hosanna Sunday. So some people say this gates of Jerusalem opened before the Lord on Palm Sunday or Hosanna Sunday. Saint Gregory, Saint Athanasius said, this is the descent of our Lord Jesus Christ to hell, to Hades, breaking the gates of brass, striking the bars of iron, taking Adam, took Adam or taking Adam and all his children and ascending to the paradise, opening the gate of paradise, as just I explained in the resurrection. A third explanation, which according to St. Basil, Theodoret, St. Cyril of Alexandria, Tertullian, St. Cyprian, is outcry and awe of the angels attending to ascended Lord. So that's about the ascension of the Lord. And another meaning 
See, it is a prophecy about the incarnation. So the gates of the world are opened to the incarnation, to God who is entering the world. And the, the last meaning is adopted by Saint Jerome. He would, final, he would find a spiritual reference to the virtual opening of the gates of heaven by the fact of our Lord taking flesh upon himself. So he said the gates of heaven are open, so God can come through these gates into our earth, taking our humanity. It also may signify those who once were slaves of sin. That's the spiritual meaning of it. But now they are free and uh, became God's princes and God's kings. As we read in the book of Revelation, we are the kings and priests of God. So now we became free. So lift up your heads, all your gates, in spiritual meaning, remove the barrier which the sin puts between us and God. So gates like barrier between us and God. Now when we are freed from the slavery of sin, these barriers are knocked down. And now I have uh, communication with God, relationship with Him, I became king and priest. Uh, when these barriers are gone, then the king of glory will enter into my heart, will enter his palace. You are the temple of God and the Holy Spirit abide in you. But in a literal sense, literally, historically, David speaks here of the gates and daughters of his royal city, Jerusalem, Zion, through which the Ark of the Covenant now to pass to the tabernacle which he had built to place the Ark of Covenant there. And he calls these doors everlasting, although they are not everlasting. But why he called these gates everlasting? Maybe on account of their durability and the matter of which they were made, or from his desires and hopes that God would make the gates of Zion everlasting, because as we read in Psalm 87 verse 2, the Lord loved the gates of Zion. But in a prophetic way, gates of Zion are the gates of heaven. Also, maybe he speaks of the gates of the court of the tabernacle, or of the tabernacle itself. Not the gates of the city, but the gates of the tabernacle, into which the ark uh, will enter. And as I told you, the ark represents the presence of God. Also, as I explained, the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ through these gates are the heavenly gates widely open uh, before Christ and before the believers in Christ. Why? For the, uh, their heavenly head ascended and are his body. So where the head is, the body will be also. So if the head entered into the heaven of heavens, the body also will be in him in the heaven of heavens. According to St. Augustine, he said, In this psalm, the psalmist refers to the ascension of the Savior in the body to heaven, and to that the angels accompanying him call on the heavenly hosts on the doors of heaven to open up those heavenly gates for the King of Glory to come in, the gates that open up to eternity. 
That's why he called them everlasting gates. Saint Athanasius said, the word was not in need for the gates to be opened. He can enter while the gates are closed. As being the Lord of all, nothing can stand in his way. But it is us who are in such a need. So the gates, when he opened the gates, that we can enter. He carried our body, delivered his body to death on our behalf, and by our body, he, Jesus, again paved for us the way to heaven. Then let's come to this question, verse 8. Who is this king of glory? Who is this king of glory? The church or the believers put this question not through ignorance, as explained. You know, on the Hosanna Sunday, the Pharisees, when the Lord entered Jerusalem, they asked it, who is this? Uh, but we are not asking like the Pharisees. Or we are not asking in pride and condensation like Pharaoh in Exodus, uh, who is the Lord your God? Or we are not asking like the Capronites in John chapter 6, 42, as wondering at the glories of his person and as the desires. But, but the question here, we are wondering of the glories of the person of Christ and we have the desire to know more of him. So when the angel asked who is the king of glory, we are wondering about his glory and want to learn more about him. And the answer, the Lord is strong and mighty. This is the answer to the question. He is not ordinary person. He is strong and mighty. He is describing him by his most exalted attributes as God of power. And if you remember first verse, the earth belongs to him. Now he is the God of power. Thus, in accordance to the idea in verse 1 and 2, he is the creator and owner of all earth. That's verse 1 and 2. Uh, also, there is an illusion to the fact that he is mighty, distinguished from the idols that people worship that has no power. Then he said, the Lord mighty in battle, the Lord mighty in battle. He who was the Lord on the cross, he entered into a battle of Satan and he was mighty and bound Satan on the cross. When he made an end to sin, when he demolished and destroyed principalities and powers and the demons, he abolished death, destroyed him that has power, destroyed Satan that has power of death, then he is the Lord mighty in battle. And also in the last day, in his second coming, when the kings of the earth shall make war with him, he shall overcome them, as we read in Revelation chapter 17 and verse 14. So mighty in battle on the cross and mighty in the battle in the end of the days. Then there is repetition in verse 9 and 10. Lift up your heads, O you gates. Lift up you everlasting doors, and the king of glory shall come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord of hosts, he is the king of glory, Selah. So the, actually this is a repetition again of verse uh, 7 and 8. Uh, the, the repetition here is designed to give force and emphasis 
what was uh, spoken and expressed before. However, perhaps there might be one observation on the repetition of verse 7 and 8 in verse 9 and 10. Maybe the meaning of the first one in verse 7 means concerning the Lord victorious over the grief and was ascending into the heaven in anticipation to the end of the world. So verse 7 and 8 about his second coming and how he uh, destroyed heaven, uh, destroyed actually Satan and the heavens were opened and he ascended. But actually in his second coming he will take us and reascend into the heaven. So verse 9 and 10 is about the second coming when he reascend not by himself but with all the multitude of the redeemed, with all his saints, uh, those who from the beginning of the world to its end, their names written in the book of life. So verse 7 and 8 about first ascension, verse 9 and 10 about taking us with him into the heaven of heavens. In a spiritual man uh, manner, this repetition in order to wake up the negligent people and the negligent churches uh, to open their gates to let Christ in. So repetition, open your gates. The Lord is standing at the door and knocking. Open your gates to receive Christ in. When Jesus entered Jerusalem on Hosanna Sunday, uh, people said, who is this? If they had known who Jesus was, the response should have been the Lord of hosts is the King of glory and they wouldn't crucify him. And these are the last verses. The Lord of hosts, he is the King of glory. Lord of hosts means all hosts of heaven and earth, angels and men, all other creatures are under his dominion and authority. He enters not merely as a victorious warrior, but as a creator and ruler of and king of earth and universe. That's why he started by saying he's the creator. He has, uh, so he's a sovereign ruler and ended by his victory. So he enters not as only a victorious warrior, but as a creator. This marvelous debate proclaimed in this psalm reveals that no one could pass through the everlasting gates and enter the heavenly sanctuary except the mighty Lord, the Lord of hosts, the King of glory. No one can enter except him, but those who are his body will enter with him. Before him alone, before Jesus alone, the everlasting gates of heavenly city would open up. The gates of the temple, the gates of the heavenly temple, not made by human hands, uh, but it is the abode of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. The psalm actually ends by Sila, that second time in this psalm. And as I told you, it is a reflective pause. So people may pause to meditate and reflect. It's not a small thing that the King of Glory humbled himself to receive us and to be received by us. This is not a small thing. We need to pause and reflect on it. 
glory in order when we reflect on it, we give glory to the Father. Whose is the earth and all that is therein? And to give glory to the Son, the King of glory, and to give glory to the Holy Spirit, the righteous of God of our salvation. This concludes actually chapter uh, or Psalm 24 from Psalms of David. Glory be to God forever and ever. Amen.